Hello and welcome to the Doxology Podcast. I am Jens Nelson. I am Lucas Stock. And this is a podcast dedicated to journeying together on the road that is the Christian faith. Join us as we discuss and investigate theology and the Christian life as we strive for unity amongst our diversity as members of Christ's church. Well, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, it, it's great to have you. Uh, it's fun to check in every once in a while on our, uh, you know, our stats online and kind of see where things are at. And you guys are like cruising right along. I mean, even th- despite the fact that we've dropped down to one, uh, one episode a week instead of two, like things have been cruising right along, and that's just a, you know, huge testament to your support. So I just wanted to start by saying thank you. Um, so yeah, I, I we appreciate it, but. Today we have a conversation that Lucas sort of put forward, and the, the the genesis, so to speak, of this episode, I suppose, is rooted in the fact that I sent you this book. I, th- I think it was maybe as a birthday gift, maybe as a Christmas gift, but uh, it's a book that I read a number of years ago um, at the recommendation of a professor, actually, at Moody. I'm blanking on who the professor was, but it was my spiritual life and community class, uh, this book had like just come out and he's like, yo, if you guys want to read this book, it's a really good book. Like you should check it out. And I remember, you know, that in that moment <laughs> on my laptop, going to Amazon, putting it on my, my wish list and a couple weeks later buying it. Uh, but the title of the book, if you're, if you're interested, if you're curious, it's the whole Christ. The subtitle is legalism, antinomianism and gospel assurance. Why the Marrow Controversy Still Matters. And this is by Sinclair Ferguson, uh, published by Crossway. I believe it was 2014. Uh, this was actually a pretty, uh, if I, if memory serves me correctly, it was a pretty highly tauted uh, book when it came out. Like, I don't know if it, it probably didn't win any, like, book of the year, you know, on a, on a global scale. But I think in the Christian publishing world, it was, it was pretty highly rated and uh, talked about. So uh, m- maybe some of that has waned in recent years, but... Uh, I think the the topic, the the point that Sinclair Ferguson is trying to make is an ever present one. I mean, he he makes that abundantly clear as he argues uh, throughout the book. Um, but as as the subtitle mentioned, the 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 gist of this of this conversation is going to be about legalism and antinomianism. And don't worry, we will define those terms just to be clear. Uh, but I think on the surface, these are these are two ideas or, or, or two topics that almost seem to be like polar opposites. Either you're a legalist or you're you know antinomian. Uh, but as Sinclair Ferguson points out, there's actually a very similar route. Uh, so that's going to be the direction of this episode. Uh, I thought what I would do is sort of start with uh, a quote from page 76, and then I'm going to kick it to Lucas. But uh, Sinclair Ferguson says, "...isms, such as legalism and antinomianism, can be dangerous, not only for those who espouse them, but also for those who employ the categories. They too easily become, quote, one-size-fits-all uh, pigeonholes, end quote. Individuals are not categories, and treating them as such can be quite misleading and often ignores their context. In particular, we need to be cautious in using language in a pejorative way." Words ending in ism and ist uh, seem to lend themselves to emotive rather than descriptive use. Um, so I think that's just like a good forewarning at the outset. When we when we talk about these things, I know in our social media driven world, and you know, we've had episodes on this recently, it can just be really easy to throw throw a <laughs> sorry throw around pejorative terms sort of uh, haphazardly and and often in a way that is not very loving or Christ like, and so. We, we, we don't want to do that. We're not necessarily here to label anybody as these terms. Um, so I just I figured it was good to say that at the outset. But 
Um, Lucas, what what do you think about this book? What stood out to you? What what where are we going to take this conversation? I really like this book. I think that it's well worth the read. I was um, so the the subtitle legalism, antinomianism, and gospel assurance: why the marrow controversy still matters. I was kind of hoping. Um, this would be a little bit more about the marrow controversy because it's something that I had never heard of before opening your package and reading the, <laughs> the cover of this book. And um, it's basically this, I think, 1700s Scottish uh, controversy between a group of pastors and theologians and um, a book that kind of was called The Marrow of Modern Divinity, which is where that the title marrow controversy comes from. Um, but in the introduction... Ferguson makes it very clear that like he's not doing like a historical account of it. He's he's taking what he sees as sort of the major themes from his study of of this controversy and those being legalism, antinomianism and gospel assurance um, and and bringing the writers and the and the people involved in that controversy into um, conversation with with our own context and stuff. So so it, it is, it, he, he gives a nice, a, a very helpful brief overview of it, but um, I definitely would have liked a little more, but... Uh, well, you know what, dude? I would... This, yeah. this, you're bringing up a good point here. Perhaps we need to do an episode on the Marrow Controversy, because I'm sure oh, most be people here have not heard of this, and if you have, like, kudos Probably. to you. Uh, but if you're interested in that idea, let us know, because it'd be fun to, to have that conversation. Yeah, to, yeah, that that's I didn't I don't know why I didn't even think of that. Um, that should have been this episode. No, I'm kidding. But um, so it's a it's a good book. It's helpful. It's uh, sort of popular, like high level popular. Um, and he's really just getting at these core uh, thematic sort of recurring pastoral issues, right? He's he's approaching this is a, this is very much a a work of pastoral theology, or, or you know pastoral book if you could put it that way and um he does a really good job of of underscoring the pitfalls and the ease with which people can fall into the pitfalls of legalism and antinomianism and rooting that in some really interesting places that we'll get into but to do a little bit of of definitions in terms of um, legalism and antinomianism, sort of the the catch-all, maybe, you know, most obvious definition would be legalism is something like works righteousness, um, that you need to follow the law of God in order to be saved, something like that. Antinomianism, kind of the opposite definition, more or less, in terms of how it, we might immediately think of it. Um, because we are saved by grace. We can do whatever we want, regardless of what the law says about it, because the law no matter ma no longer matters for us because we are saved by grace, which is literally what uh, Paul debunks in Romans six. <laughs> After he's explained the gospel, he anticipates that people are going to be like, "Oh, so does that mean that we don't have to worry about doing right or wrong, um, or we, we don't have to worry about following the law?" Um, but something that Ferguson does, which is which is very helpful, is he 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 takes a, a good amount of time to point out how those definitions are just not really sufficient. Like, sure, you know, we could we could say somebody who 
believes, you know, you need to follow the law exactly or else you can't be saved. We, we could we could describe them as, you know, falling into some sort of legalism, but it's 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 not like that quote that you read at the beginning. It's not actually that's not really getting getting at the heart of the matter and it's not really a helpful way of describing practices and thoughts and beliefs. Um, so basically the, he he gives he gives some some really helpful sort of summary type statements, but one of the one of the ones that I f- I found to be the most helpful um, is wow, I lost it. That's sad. Um, comes on page 84. Um, and this is He's, he's basically comparing and contrasting, not really comparing and contrasting, but he's linking legalism and antinomianism in terms of sort of their root problem. And, he, and he's, he's doing this uh, in a discussion about Eve in the garden. Um, legalism is not, he says, it's not merely a matter of the intellect. It's also a matter of the heart and the affections. So it's not just what we think, it's what we feel. And I'm sorry, I, I was wrong. This is page 85. Um, legal, he says, legalism at root is the manifestation of a restricted heart disposition towards God, viewing him through a lens of negative law that obscures the broader context of the father's character of holy love. Um, on page 83, he's quoting Gerhardus Voss and he said, and Voss says, legalism is a peculiar kind of submission to God's law, something that no longer feels the personal divine touch in the rule it submits to. Um, so we're going to get into a little bit more of, of sort of what's underlying these um, definitions. Um, but then the other thing that he does is um, he calls legalism and antinomianism non-identical twins that emerge from the same womb. Um, Eve's rejection of God's law. So she says, I'm going to disobey. I'm going to give, you know, give into the temptation of the serpent and not follow the law. Eve's rejection of God's law, her antinomianism was in fact the fruit of her distorted view of God, her legalism, according to, to Ferguson. And it might be a little, it might seem very counterintuitive as well as not immediately clear, but um, I think it's helpful to see this again. Sure, we can look at people who are sort of the, the cartoon versions of, you have to follow God's law to the T, or I can do whatever I want. You know, like very few people, not just currently, but ever <laughs> have have actually, you know, taught that kind of thing. But you, you can look at those extremes and and you can you can easily see how these are viewed as, as just two opposites. But you can also see where where Sinclair Ferguson is coming from with this with this recognition that there, there's this there's this, like you said, a common root that that sort of leads to these two dispositions that are both uh, wrong-headed, misguided, distorted understandings of how we relate to God with respect to his law. And it's really important that I, I didn't say how we relate to God's law. I said how we relate to God with respect to his law, because that's one of the things that Ferguson is really emphasizing throughout this book that that he's 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 pointing to within the Merrill controversy, within his exegesis, and, and what he's putting forward is legalism is really about misunderstanding the like misunderstanding the law 
because we've misunderstood God, who is the one who who gave the law. And this is going to tie into the other sort of big theme that we're going to talk about in a little bit. And I mean, it's it's not really a spoiler because it's the title of the book, The Whole Christ. Um, but this this really intentional focus that he's pulling and putting forward throughout the book to to not lose sight of the fact that the law, our obedience to the law, um, as well as we'll see the gospel and, and grace are not these abstract concepts floating around in a vacuum that that we sort of check boxes or we just sort of, um, you know, take for granted as this, you know, inanimate object, God's law that we have to, you know, interact with in a certain way. And if we do that, then we're able to get to God, you know, or, or not get to God if we don't do it or something like that. Um, and the same on the antinomian, antinomian side as well. Um, but, but these are actually personal realities, not because God's law is alive and is a person in that sense, but because God's law is not something that's just floating around in the ether. It's actually God's communication of his, his character to his people. And it's never, it, it was never supposed to be understood apart from the personal God of Israel and his dealings with his people. Um, he didn't just come, come down to meet with Israel in order to give them a rule book and then sort of, you know, recede back into transcendence. But he's actually in relationship, in covenant relationship specifically. Um, and it's that context that gives the law, it's, it, it's how the, we, we are even able to understand the law. And when we don't understand the law that way, we end up with this wrong relationship to the law because we've got a wrong relationship with God. And, the, and like I said, the same thing is true on the flip side with the antinomianism. What you're doing is you're misunderstanding God's law because you've abstracted it. You've just sort of made it its own thing and you've set it in opposition to grace, which you can do if you're just thinking in, you know, vague, abstract, philosophical terms of, well, grace and law sound kind of opposite, so we're saved by grace, so we're not saved by law, so I can forget about the law. And you can kind of see the logic of that, but there was no mention of God or Jesus in in that little logical train. And that's the big issue that, that that's why the book is called The Whole Christ, and we'll get more into that in a bit. But that's why legalism and antinomianism are these, these, these non-identical twins that are obviously different, and they have different problems that they present. But the point is there's there's this there's this root issue that comes from this misunderstanding of God's character, of God's person, that results in these two related but different misunderstandings of God's law. And I thought that was a, just a super, super helpful thing that he does. That's that I can't imagine reading this as a pastor, just how helpful I would have to I have to guess these are these are things that come up in American Christ, you know Protestant Christianity you know all the time for pastors people just not getting it and and not not because they're they're dumb or they're not listening but because there's this this misunderstanding that that lies at the root of it so anyway that's the first big thing is yeah. this 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 legalism antinomianism connection two sides of the same coin not not simply two opposite ends of a spectrum, right? 
Right. Um, that was the first big thing that, that I wanted to hit on that I just thought was really clearly articulated in this book and was really helpful. Agreed. And honestly, like you, you've already sort of highlighted the segment that I, I was also interested in that, that segment of like 81 to like 86, those pages, that's where he's highlighting that root and this conversation with Eve and, you know, the, the sins of the beginning. Um, like the, I had so many notes, so much highlighting, so many like little like conversation, you know, pieces to, to pick out. Um, but like these, the, the reason that this is a, an issue, we, we might not think of it this way, but we're all legalists at heart. We're all antinomianist uh, at heart because we these things are so sly and sneaky and they creep in in different ways and we don't even necessarily realize it. Um, but I just wanted to point out another thing you didn't quite call out. But on page 82, he says, What was injected into Eve's mind and affections during the conversation with the serpent was a deep-seated suspicion of God that was soon further twisted into rebellion against him. The root of her antinomianism, uh, opposition to and breach of the law, was actually the legalism that was darkening her understanding, dulling her senses, and destroying her affection for her heavenly father. Um, uh, He goes on to say, This may not look like the legalism with which we are familiar, but it lies at its root. For what the serpent serpent accomplished in Eve's mind, affections, and will was a divorce between God's revealed will and his gracious, generous character. Trust in him was transformed into suspicion of him by looking at, quote, naked law rather than hearing law from the gracious lips of a heavenly father. So God thus became to her he whose favor has to be earned. Um and man, that is like, it cuts to the core of like everything we do. I mean, when you think about, uh, the, I, we don't necessarily think in these categories, but when you, when you do think of, of, about a lot of American Christianity, there's a lot of these, like you, you, you do these steps along the way to, to almost merit God's favor. You know, you, you say a prayer, you repent, you begin living, um, you know, maybe a Christian life. So you, you, you know, you, you forsake certain things and you cling to other things. And we almost find like our assurance in those. Um, but that's, I think, to to Sinclair Ferguson's point is that those are are um, you know graces along the way, but they're not what saves us. That's not what unites us to Christ. We are united to Christ because He loved us, not because we you know said a prayer or because we um, did something. Um, and like you said, uh, the I, I like that word abstracting because he 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 says um, legalism is simply separating the law of God from the person of God. Eve sees God's law but she has lost sight of the true God himself. Thus, abstracting his law from his loving and generous person, she was deceived into hearing law only as negative deprivation and not as the wisdom of a heavenly father. Um, I, I think, dude, anybody that is interested in this, if you find any like, oh, I'm, my interest is peaked, you should just like pick up this book and you could just read like pages 80 to 90 and be like, wow, there's this whole wealth of knowledge. Um but obviously, there's there's much more that can be said. Um, but the, I think the last little bit that I'll note um, is that what what I find is interesting. So it's this idea that uh, okay. So page eighty six, he says it is, however, all the more complex an issue among God's people if their pastors themselves have the same legal streak that flows from distorted instincts towards the Lord but confuse those instincts uh, instincts with a gospel truth. For then not only is the truth exchanged for a lie, 
but the lie is treated as though it were truth. And that's like a super dangerous thing. I remember when I first read this, I was a youth pastor because I went back and looked um, at like, I keep track of like in my Goodreads when I've read books or whatever. And this was like very early on in my time as a youth pastor. And it's interesting. I actually have my original notation next to that quote is just like a frowny face. Um, but that's, that's, that's like the danger that we run as, as pastors. If you're in pastoral ministry, um, like I hope you, you, I hope you do pick up this book if you haven't. Um, but that's the, that's the danger of a legalistic spirit is that, uh, we take, it's not just that we take the truth and exchange it for a lie, but sometimes those lies become, uh, almost a gospel truth that must be, uh, you know, sought after. And, and you can think of really silly examples. I and mean, I can think of stuff from my childhood where like, um, you know, oh, you can't, you can't say this word or you can't dance. Like, you know, our school Moody, for example, made a lot of rules about like, you can't go to dance. You can't listen to this certain type of music. There's this dress code. Um, and granted, that's like an institution, not like a church. Um, but the, the heart, uh, the reason behind a lot of those was not a, like, um, at least in my mind, a, a, pro- it was, it was motivated out of legalism, out of uh, a viewing of certain things as being quote unquote wrong or contrary to what they saw as the perceived reality or truth. So they took this thing and, and almost distorted it like this. It wasn't overtly a lie, but it wasn't a whole truth and, and presented that as like, this is the way to live. And I'm probably like, I apologize to like MBI faculty or like former alumni. Like I'm not trying to beleaguer our school or anything, but, um, Anyway, that's neither here nor there. Uh, I've lost my place. So I don't know. What do you think? I, where did you want to take this conversation next? No, yeah, I think that that that, that um, those quotes you read were were much better at at hitting at what I was trying to hit at. So I'm glad that you picked picked those ones uh, since I skipped over them. But uh, I think it's like the the other big thing this this uh focus on not abstracting um god's law from god is honestly like not even my favorite part of the book but earlier in the book he's talking about the gospel he's talking about the the grace of god he's talking about the benefits of the gospel the results of the gospel you know salvation he's talking through the the ordo salutis, the the order, you know, justification and regeneration, you know, very classical kind of way of speaking about the process of salvation. But he's talking about how, and and, and I think it'll be pretty obvious how this is related to questions of, of, of the law and questions of legalism and such, is how the benefits of the gospel, you know, quote unquote, the gospel, um, and the results of belief in the gospel become abstracted from the person of Christ. And the same kind of thing happens with that as when we abstract the law. There's a complete misunderstanding of the actual content because we've actually taken the gospel away from its content because its content is not a list of doctrines. Its content is not a list of things to believe. Its content is not... Um, you know, a list of benefits that become yours when you believe uh, that you get to participate in. But the content of the gospel is Christ himself, the person of Christ himself. And there's a really helpful way that he that Ferguson puts this. He says, um, 
Oh, this is on page 48 at the bottom. Notice the difference in emphasis here. He's, he's, he's made uh, some, some earlier points and quotes. Then he says, when the benefits are seen as abstractable from the benefactor, so we're talking about the benefits, we can think of like specifically in the context of the benefits of saving faith in the gospel. So we can think of being saved, uh, union with Christ, uh, uh, sanctification, blessing, all that kind of stuff. When those benefits are seen as abstractable from the benefactor, Christ, God, the issue becomes, one, for the preacher, how can I offer these benefits? And two, for the hearer, how can I get these benefits into my life, right? But when it is seen that Christ and his benefits are inseparable and the latter are not abstractable commodities, and I love thinking about them as, as commodities, the primary question becomes one for the preacher, how do I preach Christ himself? And two for the hearer, how do I get into Christ? And it might seem kind of like tomato, tomato, where we're talking about like, oh, well, you know, if you get if you get into Christ, like that second question, then you get the benefits, you know, and you can't actually have the benefits without Christ. So even if you're thinking about it sort of in the wrong order, like isn't the end result the same? And like sort of, I think like most of the time, the end result probably is the same. But there is, particularly if we're looking at this from a theological point of view, if we're looking at it from the point of view of the the preacher in that those question lists, not the hearer. It, it's more important because there is there is a big difference that happens um, that f sort of fits in and and dovetails with the problems with legalism, the problems with how we look at the law as this abstractable commodity. When we're also looking at the benefits of the gospel as abstractable commodities, because then we run into the third thing that Ferguson talks about in the book, which is gospel assurance, which is. Um, a very nice evangelical way of, of, of saying, you know, like, how do I know I'm, how do I know that I'm saved? And how, how can I answer that question? On what basis do I answer that question? And it's a lot shakier if you're talking about the, 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 um, the engine that's driving your, you know, faith is the benefits of the gospel or your, the engine is Christ, Right. And, and um, it's a big deal, you know, and the con like I said, the content of the gospel is not this, this happens and this happens and this is true and that is wrong and that's false and we avoid this. Those, those, ev those all might be true things that are, you know, necessary parts of living a life um, of faith, but that's not the same thing as saying like, that's what the gospel is. That's what the truth is. Those, the Christ is the gospel. Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, not living a certain life. And this is one of the big things he draws out of the marrow controversy is this question about, like, do you need to, like, prepare yourself in a certain way before you're able to be saved? And, you know, like, I, I often heard, you know, growing up and, I mean, still to this day, like, I, I often hear people talk about or preach this kind of thing where it's like, you know, you don't need to get your life in order before you come to Christ. Like the whole point is that you come to Christ, well really Christ comes to you and the the change that needs to happen is not something that is accomplished by you ahead of time in order to make it presentable for Christ. The change that needs to happen in your life, the regeneration, your, your union with Christ is what 
is what makes those changes, right? Um, so anyway, the the idea of this sort of, you know, everything comes back to Christ. And when and saying that, it, it's not shorthand. It's, it's literally everything comes back to this person, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Holy Blessed Trinity. That's, that's such a huge... It just leaped off the page at me. I was like, this is, it's, it, I, I didn't really know what to, you know, like I said, I thought I was going to get a book about the Merrill controversy, whatever that was. So, so I wasn't, I wasn't really like sure where he was going to go after reading the introduction. And I was like, dang, this is just so, because it's so, like I said before, it's so clearly articulated that it really does a good job of just highlighting the problems. And, and this, this whole thing of, of like commodities that we're trying to hawk to people is such a it's not unique but but it is such a um i think major challenge that i've seen in in the church culture that i've grown up in and around and, and interacted with you know like like evangel american evangelicalism i i just think lends like that that is a weakness that it lends itself to these questions of legalism and antinomianism and assurance um any any kind of Christian in any culture in any time of history struggles with all these same things. I'm not saying that it's like I said, it's not unique, but I do think that there's something there's something uh, particularly dangerous about it when because we are we are so prone to presenting the gospel as a series of affirmations that we try to sell you on. You know, think about apologetics. Think you know, especially like like like. I think of apologetics like capital A, like, you know, people like, um, you know, uh, Ravi Zacharias Ministries, you know, not getting into all that, but just like that kind of approach of, um, you know, case for Christ, that kind of thing. Um, that there's, I'm not saying there's anything inherently wrong with, with that kind of work, but the, the presuppositions and sort of the mindset that go into framing the, the kinds of questions you're asking I think what Ferguson is doing is he's highlighting how that kind of cuts against the grain of, of the New Testament witness where it's it's a person that we are in that is our salvation. That is the good news. That's what we're preaching and announcing. It's not, hey, I know how you can live a holy life. Um, you need to, you know, do this so that, you know, Jesus will give you a holy life. Well, no, it's it's actually you get to live the life of Christ because you've been united to him by the spirit um, according to the will of the father and all that. And it's like, it's, it's a subtle, but really, really major perspective shift. Um, And I've got, I've got, I've got more thoughts, but I want to kick it back to you just in terms of like on that theme of, you know, this, this Christocentrism that, that really characterizes this book, both in terms of, of grace where he's talking about Christ, but also, when he's what we've already touched on with with the law and and the character of God, um, very similar ideas I think. But anyway, yeah, just sort of what 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 stood out to you that I that I missed or, or skipped over or anything. No, you did a really good job covering it. There's only a, a last little bit that I think I'll, I'll add there. Um, uh, he 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 says near the end, Christian assurance is not self assurance and self confidence. It is the reverse: confidence in our Father. Trust in Christ as our Savior and joy in the Spirit as the Spirit of Sonship, seal of grace, uh, seal of grace, and earnest of our inheritance as sons and daughters of God. 
when these are the hallmarks of our lives and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ has come home to us in full measure. And that surely is one of the great needs of our times. Um, but like that just like what I like you said, too, I think when I got this book, uh, you know, like I had said earlier, some time had passed since it was recommended to me. So I didn't have like the full context of like when it was recommended or why. Um, but you pick up this book and you see legalism, antinomianism, why the marrow controversy still matters. And it's not necessarily abundantly clear what this book is going to be about. Um, but he, he, he does paint this great picture of like why legalism and antinomianism, these two twins that are not the same, but still twins um, from the same root, why they are so prevalent and pervasive and sort of like the counter balance to, um, I guess, opposing them to, 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 to find your assurance, not rooted in your own works, um, not rooted in some sort of like, well, you know, God is given me grace, so I'm going to go sin. You know, Paul says, shall we sin that grace may abound, uh, that grace may abound by no means. Right. Um, but that's, that's sort of the, the legalistic and antinomian, antinomian spirit. Uh, but our, our assurance that the life that we have in Christ, um, is rooted in, in that gospel assurance and what he has done. Um, it sounds so simple anytime we talk about those things, but it, it seems to be still like so forgotten and so, um, just misused maybe. Um, but I, I think the last thing I'll say, I love how he wraps up the book. I mean, it's literally just in the conclusion here. Um, but he says, at least for Thomas Boston, who we haven't really mentioned, but Thomas Boston played a, a role, I guess, in some of the marrow and, and following things. But um, at least for Thomas Boston and for many since, the basic issues involved in this controversy have served both as a litmus test and a catalyst. As a litmus test, it increases our sensitivity to and unmasks the depths of the legal disposition that lingers, often hidden in our hearts. The human heart, Calvin wrote, has so many, cranny, uh, so many crannies where vanity hides, so many holes where falsehood lurks. It is so decked out with deceiving hypocrisy that it often dupes itself. That is a great quote from the Institutes, by the way. Uh, but the marrow emphasis on the grace of God and on the God of grace, who in Christ is the gospel, functions as spiritual um, angiography. It injects a gospel dye into our spiritual heart arteries and reveals where there has been any degree of gospel hardening. And as a catalyst, it causes us to reflect on and wrestle with key theological and pastoral issues and thus leads us to a deeper appreciation of the nature of the gospel and how to live into it, preach it, and apply it. This not only affects us theologically at the level of the understanding, but also acts on the affections and the will. Uh, it then begins to suffuse and transform Christian service, not, not least preaching. It creates the tincture that Thomas Boston said people began to notice in his ministry. Um, so the, I think what I, you know, I remember reading this again as a pastor and what I took away, and again, just as a youth pastor even, um, was this like this this conviction to to not be legalistic, to not be antinomianism, but to to cling to the the grace of Christ, the the God who um, who knew us, who bought us, who who sustains us, and um, you know this salvation. We say this frequently; it's it's a common phrase. But salvation is by grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone. Um, you know, it's Christ centered, Trinity honoring, eternity rooted, redemption providing. Uh, adoption experiencing, holiness producing, assurance affecting, God glorifying salvation. 
Um, and I don't know, like this, this is a, a great, great read. That's, that's sort of like where I'll land. Um, so can't recommend this book highly enough. Yeah. I mean, I don't really have anything else to add. Um, my, the only other thoughts are just sort of more like an interesting observation being that I, I read this following this past semester, which I, you know, we, we've done a couple episodes that sprang from readings in my modern history and doctrine course when, you know, talking about, uh, we, we did that reading with Bart, we did that, that one with Fosdick and Machen. Um, but this, this, this very, you know, emphatic universal Christocentrism really, for me, the, the little bit that I've been exposed to really characterizes one of Karl Barth's big concerns. And it's funny because, you know, Sinclair Ferguson just Carl Barth, like they're they're not really like two peas in a pod, just in terms of their traditions and sort of the the projects that they're working on. But they but it's interesting to see these resonances between two very different figures, you know, living in different times, different places, doing different things. But the problems that they're that they see are, you know, stemming from a mis this this you know failure to grasp really the importance of this, like the book is called, whole Christ-ness of our faith, right? And and um, I think that that is a really interesting thing to, to note, but then also it's just a really helpful reminder of how these are problems that are not unique or new, um, and they're also, that suggests to me, they're also kind of big deals that we need to, to work with. And I think that this is, a, um, like I said, a really helpful, especially pastorally um, kind of reflection um on the way that these themes interact with each other um uh i I definitely i definitely think that there were there were some areas where i was like kind of left wanting more um towards the beginning and then some areas where i kind of thought the book could be a little bit shorter (laughs) but it's a good it's a it's a really good read it's not it's not a hard read he writes well and and uh it's a you know not that this isn't like a book review episode, but to conclude, I would also say, you know, like if you're interested in the kind of things that we've been talking about, um, they're all just coming out of this book. So read it. Yeah. Um, it would be the would be the best way to to to, to dive into um, a little more detail. So I think that about that about does it for, for sure for this conversation. I think. Yeah. Um, we we neglected to to pick a prayer out. I, I found um, one. Well, I, I realized that, and I was like, you, you know did. what? We can't. Okay. Yeah, I, I I realized that too. I was like, shoot, Good. we never planned a prayer. Good. So I figured, you know, we go back to a classic, classic doxology text, one we used to read and mention all the time in our early days, um, and it hasn't come up in a while. So why not revisit it? Can you guess? Do you the know? Valley of Vision. No, no, no. This is a, a no, biblical biblical passage. Oh, is it Colossians? Colossians 1. Lucas is correct. He knows his <laughs> doxology history. Uh, Colossians 1.15. Uh, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. 
He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have his to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Amen. Amen. Yeah, mm. it's a good one. Yeah. It's a good one. It is classic. <laughs> <laughs> well, fun fun conversation, good book. Uh, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for participating, Jens, and thank you, uh, whether this is your first episode or your last, I guess. <laughs> it's not your quite what I meant. Or but <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, if you'd like to connect with us, uh, you can always shoot us an email at doxologypodcast at gmail.com or find us on social medias at uh, doxologypodcast. We'd love your feedback, questions, future episode ideas. Um, we really do read and and respond and take all of that that uh communication very seriously we love it and uh um i don't mean seriously like serious but just like we love we really we say it and we mean it we'd love to hear from you and whatever you've got to say we want to interact with you so please do so um if you've got anything on your mind that that you'd want to shoot our way i think that does it so until next time we'll see you